Please keep 2 Kings chapter 4 open in front of you. We're going to uh, have a look at the whole of the chapter. So let me pray as uh, we start in 2 Kings chapter 4 this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the wonderful God and the working God uh, and the miraculous God that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 4 and help us this morning uh, to understand just how awesome you are and to live in light of that. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, during the week I spent, uh, I spotted an article by a peer of mine. It was a guy who was a, a, a year below me at college. And it was an article about him meeting the Queen. Because, you know, it's been doing the rounds, lots of articles and things around uh, the Queen at the moment. But he tells the story about how he was randomly picked in 2006 to, to meet Her Majesty. And uh, as he did, he found himself that day amongst a group of names and titles and ranks. Uh, everyone around him had some kind of official title. So there was the, the former prime minister, the, the chief of police, the governor general. And uh, John Howard was the prime minister at the time. And as he escorted the queen around to meet these uh, dignitaries, he looked at their name tags to introduce them by their, their formal title. But the problem was, as he got to this peer of mine, he was just plain old James. Uh, there was nothing you know, special about him, no title, no rank, nothing. And so what the, the Prime Minister John Howard did at that time, probably being caught out by the fact that this guy was titleless and didn't know what to say about him, he just looked at him briefly, looked at his name tag, realised he had no title, and then just proceeded to move on to the next person, didn't even mention him whatsoever. Uh, but shockingly, for my friend James, the Queen stopped at that point. And uh, she left John Howard's side and she walked over to him and shook his hand, which she didn't do for some of the other people, and said, Hello. Uh, here's an actual photo of it up on the screen. Uh, that's, and I know it says Getty Images there, but that's actually the photo. Then that's actually him uh, meeting the Queen. And uh, what struck him is how much the Queen cared to say hello to someone such as ordinary as him. That she, in a sense, went out of her way to do that at that point. He even got to have a further conversation with her later in that day, which uh, is pretty cool. But as great as that would have been... And uh, as lovely as a witness as that is to the character of the Queen, doesn't that just give us the smallest of glimpses of what it means to be known by God, uh, to be known by the King of the whole universe? Because let's face it, and uh, sorry if I offend you here, but we're all pretty ordinary people. Uh, we are. We're, we're ordinary people. And sure, you might have a title and be known in your particular field, but we're ordinary people. And yet the God of the universe knows each of us by name. He knows the number of hairs on our heads, uh, or lack thereof for some of us. Uh, more than that, this God is our heavenly Father who knows what we need. And because he knows what we need, he provides for us and he cares for us. And what we have in 2 Kings chapter 4 is a chapter full of no names. These are titleless people, if you look over the whole chapter. They're rankless people. They're ordinary people of God, and yet God knows what each one of these people need. And we see in this chapter that he cares for them, and he provides for them. So we're going to jump straight in and have a look at the uh, the four events. There's four events that come up in this chapter. And uh, remember where we're up to so far. So back in chapter 2, uh, Elijah was taken by God, and now we have Elisha, who's the new prophet of God. And last week we saw Elisha in the political realm. So he was amongst the kings, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, uh, there was the, the king of Moab. 
But this week, we see him amongst the ordinary, faithful people of God. So pick it up with me, 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 4, from verse 1. And this is point 1 on your outline as well. The first of the four events, God's care and provision for a widow. Verse 1, let me read. So one of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, has died. You know that your servant feared the Lord. Now the creditor is coming to take my two children as his slaves. And we've already met the sons of the prophets. We met them back in chapter 2. They served Elisha in, in his work. But this is one of the wives of the sons of the prophets. And it doesn't tell us how, but her husband, this faithful man, has now died. And not only is that a great loss for this now widow, but her children will also be taken, we're told. And that was, that was a reality in the, in the ancient world. If you could not pay your debts, then you were taken into slavery to pay off your debts. That's the way it was. And this family, they have debts. And so the husband has died. There's no way to pay the debt. This lady may be old herself. And so that the children will be now taken to pay off that family debt. And if you just think of that, this is a terrible situation. It's just, it's a hopeless situation for this woman. And it will only get worse for her because now this woman has no husband to provide for her and she'll have no children either to provide for her. And again, we have to understand the ancient context here. For a woman to be widowed and for a woman to be without children and especially to have no son, that is to be in a very dangerous situation. And so what this woman does is she, in her despair, she cries out to Elisha. She goes to God's prophet for help. And she doesn't request anything in particular. She, she doesn't demand anything. She, she simply comes and she cries out. She, she lets Elisha, the prophet of God, know her situation in her desperation. And I, expect, I suspect she does this because she knows the kind of God Yahweh is. You see, Deuteronomy 10, it tells us that God executes justice for the fatherless and for the widowed. And this is a family in Israel that is now fatherless, that is now widowed. And so verse 2, Elisha asks this woman what she has in her house, and she replies by basically saying nothing. Uh, all I have is this, this one jar of oil. That, that, that's it. It just shows how poor this family was. You know, their debt, it, it wasn't a debt for a family holiday. It wasn't a debt for a new car or, or a renovated qu- uh, kitchen. No, no. The debt was because of the basics of life, for food, for shelter. And so verse 3, have a look at verse 3. Elisha instructs her to go and collect as many jars as she can to go to the neighbors around her and, and ask them for any of their empty jars that they might have, which they do. And then they begin to pour their one jar of oil into the many empty jars. And as they do, the oil keeps flowing and flowing until there were no more jars. And so verse 7, have a look, verse 7. Elisha said to her, in light of all these jars, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and then you and your sons can live on the rest. And so what we have here is this, this beautiful, miraculous, because it is miraculous. Uh, we've got to realize something supernatural is happening here. But what we have is this beautiful story of God caring and providing for his people in Israel. That's what this is. You know, this is this is the God that we worship, the God who cares for His faithful. But you might be thinking at this point, well, hold on. If if God cared so much, 
Why did he let the husband die? Why did he die in the first place? Which is a good question and a fair question, but hold on to that for now because we'll come back to that. Uh, I want to look at the other events first because in the next episode we meet another woman, a woman from Shunem. That was the uh, the, the bit that uh, Sandra read out for us, and that's a town near the, the middle of the kingdom of Is- of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this woman, she's different. She's not poor uh, like the previous woman, and she's not widowed. Though we're told that her husband is old, you know, which is a lovely thing to say about your husband. You know, he's my old husband. Uh, but, but it could actually be a really important bit of, of information. Because should her husband die, if he's old, and if the description there is to help us understand that he might be old in age, well, again, this woman might find herself in a very dangerous situation, like the first one. And look at what we read at the end of verse 14. Because what do we read there? End of verse 14, she has no son. And again, that puts her in a vulnerable position. Even with her wealth. That, that's the reality of the ancient world. And it really is lovely what this woman does for Elisha. She knows he's a holy man of God. She knows he has the, she has the means to, to care and provide for this man. And so she's, she's generous towards him. And so verse 10, she provides a room for him to stay in. They actually, in a sense, build a room uh, and, and, and furnish a room for Elisha to stay in on his travels. And because of her generosity and, and care, Elisha, if you have a look at verse 13, he wanted to do something for her. And so he offers to speak to the king or to the commander on her behalf because, uh, you know, I, I know some important people. Uh, perhaps I can help you. Is there something I can do to help you? Because I know the king, I know the commander. But again, we see what a lovely lady this woman is because end of verse 13, basically she says, no. She says, I'm good. I don't need anything. You don't need to repay me for my kindness. And that's not why I'm being kind. But Gehazi, Elijah's, uh, Elisha's servant, he mentions her childlessness. And so look now at verse 16. Look at verse 16. So Elisha says to her, in light of a childlessness, at this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. And that is a massive thing for him to say. Uh, particularly to a woman who's never been able to have children. Uh, if you know anyone, or if you've ever experienced it yourself, if you know the heartache of infertility, you know that's a massive promise for Elisha to make to this woman. And you can tell how huge a deal it is by the way the woman responds. See, so look again at verse 16. Look at, look at how she responds. She says, verse 16, she says, No, my Lord, man of God, do not deceive your servant. In other words, don't get my hopes up. Don't, don't say such a thing to me because I've been childless all my life. I know the pain. I've, I've dealt with my pain. My husband's old. So, so how can you make such a promise? Don't be so rash in making a promise. But then what do we read? Look at verse 17. Verse 17, the woman conceived and gave birth to a son at the same time the following year as Elisha had promised her. And if the story ended there, that would make just for another great story. Another great example of God's care and provision for his people. He's provided this son for this woman. How precious. But there's more to the story. Because the son grows up, and we don't know how old he is at this point, but he develops some sort of health issue. Uh, He cries out, verse 18, My head, my head. 
And not like some dehydrated 10-year-old on a you know, hot summer's day. No, no, this complaint's serious. So look at verse 20. He dies. And as you read verse 22 and 23, it's as though this woman doesn't even tell her husband that her son is now dead. Everything is all right, she says. And she says that because her mind is so fixed on one thing. Her mind is fixed to going and seeing Elisha. And so she takes her servant with her. She saddles the donkey and she heads to Elisha at Mount Carmel to see him. And when she gets there, she she even refuses to tell Gehazi what is really going on. Again, she says, everything is all right. Everything is fine. And it's not until she gets to Elisha that she then breaks out in full emotion. So look at verse 27. Verse 27, when she came up to the man of God, to Elisha at the mountain, she clung to his feet. Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in severe anguish, and the Lord has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, do not deceive me? You see, there's no greater despair and anguish than the mother losing her child. And for this woman, I suspect it's an even deeper anguish because she, she had made her peace with the fact that she couldn't have a son. She, she, in a sense, seemed to have dealt with her childlessness as much as it broke her. She'd made her peace with it. And then along comes Elisha. He makes this promise and God gives her this son finally, but then all of it only to then take that son away. But there's more to the story. Elisha, having now realized what has happened, he he goes back with this woman to her son. He sends Gehazi along first, but that won't do. So when Elisha himself gets there, we get verse 34. And uh, he does what I think can only be described as rather strange in verse 34. We we don't get told why he he lays on top of the sun, eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, in that sort of way. Uh, It might be a symbol of, of him giving his life uh, to the son, we're not told, but that's what he does. And then we read end of verse 35, have a look. End of verse 35, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. And in verse 37, the woman came, fell at Elisha's feet and bowed to the ground and she picked up her son and she left. And so in the end, there is this great story that, that we expected from the beginning. And at one level, hey, you know, all's well that ends well, right? Like in the end, it all works out. It's all good. God provided in the end. But then on the other hand, why, why make it so hard? Wouldn't, wouldn't it have been much easier not to have gone through this whole death of the son process? Again, like the husband dying in the first story. Why? Hold that thought for now. Hold that thought somewhat for now because we'll get there. But I say somewhat because there's actually still more to this story. And we won't go there now because we'll get there in a few weeks' time. But when you get to chapter 8, we see that God uses what happens here with the rising, the raising of the sun from the dead to restore all the woman's possessions. Don't go there now. We'll see when we get to chapter 8. But if this episode with the death of her son never happened, then all that she had would have been taken away. All of, all of her land, all of her possessions would have been gone if it wasn't for what happened here. And as I said, we'll get there when we get to chapter 8 for the full story. But the point is, that is always how God works. Everything that happens in this life for the people of God, even the bad stuff, 
It always happens for the good of God's glory and for the good of God's people. And often we don't get to see how God's been at work through some particular difficulty of our lives until months or years down the track. That's, the, that's what happens with this woman. It's not until years down the track that, that we see the, the purposes of God in her son dying and being raised back to life. And sometimes we will never know the purposes of God until we hit eternity, until all things are revealed. But what we must always remember is that God knows what we need and he cares and he provides for his people. And he always works for the good of his people, just like he did for this woman. But there are two more uh, events, two more episodes that we'll look at in this chapter and they're much more quick, uh, quick in hours. So next point God's care and provision for the sons of the prophets. And with this story, if you have a look at verse 38, we're told that there was now a famine in the land. So food was hard to come by, uh, produce was hard to come by. And so one of the sons of the prophets, he goes out to the fields to see what he can find, whatever scarce kind of produce he can find in the land. And then he mixes all the things he finds into the one pot. Just imagine him finding all sorts of different ingredients. He mixes it all in together in one pot. But then we read that one of the ingredients are no good. And we don't know exactly how no good this one ingredient is. It, it could just be that as they sat there eating uh, around the table, suddenly you heard everyone's stomachs starting to turn and churn. And next thing you know, there's a big lineup at the bathroom. It could be that. Uh, or it could be really serious. It, it could be serious, deadly food poisoning that they're just about to eat or they've just eaten. Either way, what little food that they had, what little food that they could possibly collect and put together in this one pot, it's ruined. It's no good. Now there's nothing to eat. And I love what they say in verse 40. Just look at verse 40. They say, there's death in the pot, which kind of sounds like one of my kids overreacting to dinner when they're not happy about what dinner is. You know, There's death in the pot. But again, what we have is this picture of God's care and provision. So look at verse 41. Elisha tells them to get some meal and, and get some flour and to throw it in the pot. And as they do that, miraculously, then there was nothing bad in the pot. And they could eat. And now they need not starve. And the last story is very similar with the hundred men. Uh, and it's very interesting. If you have a look at verse 42 now, do you notice where this man comes from in verse 42? He comes from Baal Shilisha. And that town used to be called simply Shalisha. It comes up in 1 Samuel. And now it's got Baal in front of it. And now it seems that Baal worship has taken over this town. And we know this from two kings so far, that, that Israel and the whole were worshipping the Baal gods. But there's this one faithful man who comes from that town to see Elisha. And he comes to give Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread from that Baal town. And it's a bit of irony here. You know, here's this place of Baal worship bringing the first of its produce to the prophet and people of Yahweh to provide for the people of Yahweh. There's an irony there. But then what Elisha does is he asks his attendant to give that bread to all the people that are there. Uh, and these people that would have been starving, desperate for food. And we're told that there were a hundred men in that group, uh, perhaps plus women and children. It's not a small group. And so understandably, the attendant, he doubts the usefulness of 20 bits of bread. How's this going to go amongst 100 plus maybe women and children? But look at what Elisha then says, verse 43. Verse 43. Elisha said, 
For this is what the Lord says. They will eat and they will have some left over. So he gave that, those 20 pieces of bread to them, to the 100 men. And as the Lord had promised, they ate and had some left over. And so what do we see again? We see God caring and providing for his people. And that's, that's the main point of this chapter. Through his prophet Elisha, by these miraculous means, God cares and provides for his people. He knows what they need. And so he acts. That's the point of the chapter. But before we think on how this chapter applies for us today, let me share three quick observations to help us as we go to apply it. Firstly, did you notice how none of the people in chapter 4 are named? None of these people of God are named. The widow, her sons, the wealthy woman and her son, the sons of the prophet, the hundred men, none of them named. And as the biblical story goes on, none of these people become central to God's saving plans. See, God doesn't act for these particular people for some greater, grander purpose. Usually childlessness in the Bible, we expect them to come some sort of important figure. We expect an Abraham or Isaac or a Jacob or a Samuel or a David. But no, these people, they are ordinary people of God, just like you, just like me. And God acts for their good and in their needs simply because they are his people. Simply because he loves them. Secondly, these are all faithful people of God. They're not like the rest of Israel who are unfaithful. See, the wife of the son, uh, the son of the prophet, she goes to Elisha for help, not Baal. The wealthy woman at the death of her son, she insists, everything's all right. I've got faith. I I insist in my faith to go and see Elisha. Uh, She's actually the woman named in Hebrews 11. If you remember Hebrews 11 from last term, that great uh, chapter of the heroes of the faith, she is the nameless woman of Hebrews 11.35. Women receiving their dead, having them raised to life again. And we know that the sons of the prophets in the last two stories, that they were faithful followers of God. But the third observation, these are faithful people amongst the curse. And that's why the husband dies. And that's why the son suffered the pain in his head and died. And that's why the land was suffering under famine. So we've got to remember this. Israel at this point are under curse for their unfaithfulness. It's exactly like God had warned them. Be unfaithful and there will be consequences. There will be curse. And we've seen this in the book of Joel that we're looking at in our gospel teams, in our small groups through the week, haven't we? Israel's unfaithfulness to God puts all of Israel under curse. Everyone suffers. It brings famine upon the land. It brings sickness upon the healthy. It brings death amongst the people of God. And that's been the reality since the day sin entered this world, hasn't it? See, remember, when God said to Adam and Eve, do not eat or you will surely die... God wasn't lying. They ate. And what happened? Sin and death entered the world on that day. And our world has been under the curse of sin since that day. But that doesn't mean that God gave up on his people. And that's what we see in this chapter. We see God through Elisha caring, providing for his people, even amongst the curse. Even amongst the curse of death and sickness and famine. And this is where we begin to apply this now to us today. 
You see, who does Elisha remind us of in this chapter? Just, just think of who he reminds us of. See, doesn't he remind us of Jesus? What did Jesus do 2,000 years ago? He raised people from the dead. And not only one person like Elisha, but multiple times Jesus did that. And what else did Jesus do? He fed the crowds, and not just a 100, but 4,000, 5,000 plus women and children. And each time when he fed those people, what happened? Well, they ate and there were some left over. Next week, we'll see Elisha heal a leper. What did Jesus do? He healed leprosy. And when Jesus died on that cross 2,000 years ago, what did Jesus die for? He died for the curse of sin. He, he died for a world that is under curse so that the people of this world might be forgiven and freed from death, freed from sickness. And who did Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, die for in that moment? You see, Jesus died for ordinary, nameless, titleless people like you and me. See, if you ever doubt that our Heavenly Father knows what we need and cares and provides for us, then look at what Jesus has already done for you. He, he bought you life. He bought you eternal life under the curse of death. And it's not only in that gift of life that God knows and provides what we need. It's actually in everything. It is in the day-to-day. So just think of how incredible it is to know that God knows what you need. Just you individually, just, just think of how incredible it is that God knows what you need. See, think about that for a moment. For one, isn't it incredible that God gives each of us our daily bread and gives it to each of us in such abundance? You see, we read this chapter, and I, I think we struggle to understand famine. In our Western context, we struggle to understand star- starvation. If, if there's death in the pot, if we don't like dinner and we think it's horrible, we can go buy a kebab. And we can celebrate and go, hey, kebab, even better. We don't understand famine. We don't understand death in the pot. And so for one, we should remember to be thankful for how abundantly God does provide for us in that day to day. But do we realize that God knows and provides what we need even in those moments of difficulty? You see, we still live in a world under curse. We don't know famine, but famine might come. Uh, Most of us here have never experienced war, but world war might come. Uh, We might see another Great Depression. And in those moments, God knows what we need and he will provide for us and we can trust him. And dare I say, in letting such horrific things happen like famine or, or war or depression, God knows what we need. He might bring those things upon this world because he knows what our world needs. And so do we trust him? So even in those normal times of disappointment for us, you've been faithful, you've been prayerful, you've been godly about some new job that you're hoping to get, uh, some promotion you've been working towards, a house you're looking to buy, a house you're looking to rent, whatever it might be, and then you miss out. And, And it doesn't happen, and we can't help but feel really disappointed at the fact that it didn't work out. But in that moment, we can know and we can be sure that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He's provided in you missing out. You see, we can miss out on that job or that promotion or that house or that holiday or that moment of good health and we cop sickness instead. And in all that, we can know that God knows what we need. He says no because he knows. 
and we can trust him. And not meaning to get gloomy, but even in death itself. God knows and provides what his faithful needs, even in death. And we see that in this chapter, don't we? The husband who was faithful, he feared the Lord. He, he was a faithful man of God, and yet he died. The son of the, healthy, uh, of the wealthy woman, that son died. And again, I don't mean to get gloomy, but you might become terminally ill. I might become terminally ill, and we die. It happens. And yet, even in that, we can know that God knows what we need. We can know that God provides for his faithful. And we can know that, of course, because of Jesus. That's why a Christian funeral is never a funeral of grief without hope. There's grief rightly at a Christian funeral, but that faithful brother or sister is now with Jesus. See, God gave them what they needed most of all, eternal life with him forever. So can you see how incredible it is that God always knows what his faithful needs and he always provides and cares for us and gives us exactly what it is that we need, even if we don't agree. See, that is the ultimate peace and comfort for the follower of Jesus. And so, yes, it would have been pretty cool to meet the queen, even better if she knows your name. But the God of the universe knows each of us, each of his faithful by name. And with each of us, he knows exactly what we need and he gives us what we need and he always cares for us. And we know he's already given us life, the life that we need most of all in Jesus, his son. That's what this chapter teaches us and it's incredible. Amen.